The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So how is the Jewish world responding to the tragic loss of 45 Jews in a stampede during a religious holiday last week? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, we've got a lot of ground to cover, important issues to discuss today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. But as always on Thursdays, the phone lines are wide open to you for your Jewish-related questions. And of course, we welcome calls from Jewish friends who differ with our position about Jesus, Yeshua, being the Messiah. 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. I want to give you an important update on the Israeli elections I want to give you more about the odd situation with this Gentile Christian who is posing as an Orthodox Jewish rabbi living in Israel. I want to talk to you about that. But I want to focus first on the tragedy in Meron last week. I mistakenly said in the area of Jerusalem, uh, when speaking about it last week, of course, Meron is in northern Israel near Safed Tzfat. And this was something really unprecedented. The, the the loss of life, the, the staggering number of people killed while celebrating a traditional Jewish holiday was, was just numbing and stunning for the country. Coming out of COVID, now the largest public gathering that, that would have been held with, with a lot of the restrictions being relaxed, uh, 100,000 perhaps more traditional Jews gathered together coming from different parts of the world to visit the grave site of the famous rabbinic leader, Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai, and uh, 33rd day in the counting of the Omer. This is from Passover to Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, bonfires lit and commemorating this man as the light of Israel, and so on. It, it, forget about whether you, why the holiday or the traditions or venerating someone's grace. Forget about all that. It's a major annual event in traditional Judaism, and specifically there in Israel. So there's a tunnel through which the crowds pass. There's dispute that did the police have a barricade and some part of it, is it just it hasn't been taken care of properly, or the Orthodox Jews just don't care about the laws, the ultra-Orthodox, they're going to do what they want to do. Regardless of any of that, 45 men were killed. It was all men that were there. 45 men were killed, many, many others injured. So it's, it just sends shockwaves, obviously, through a community. There are about 6 million Jews in Israel. So when you, you multiply this, it, it would be like a 9-11 type of loss of life in, in one day that we had in America happening in Israel. I mean, it's, it's, it's that jarring, but the nature of it makes it all the more jarring. So I'm not here to give commentary on what happened or why. I'm not here to give spiritual insight behind the events. If there's insight to be gained by the scripture, by meditation and prayer, I haven't received that insight yet. And again, the Jewish world mourns over this. These are lives that are lost that cannot be brought back. But it's interesting to watch the different reactions from different parts of the Jewish community. 
If you're reading op-eds, say, in Haaretz, which is very liberal and which would often be the most hostile to ultra-Orthodox Judaism and looking at it as backwards or antiquated or unhelpful or uncooperative with the rest of the society, you'll kind of read things that are critical. I mean, mourning, of course, mourning over the loss of life and saying it's tragic, but then critical of the ultra-Orthodox communities that, that want to have their own laws, that want to do things their way, that, that, that are not going to listen to the safety uh, cautions, and, you know, be it during COVID or be it now, and that this should have been fixed long ago. This was an unsafe situation. and There should have either been control of numbers of people or safety issues should have been addressed years ago, and this could have been avoided. And, and a tragedy, a similar, not quite as wide scale, similar tragedy happened many decades ago in Israel, maybe 80 years ago. In any case, in any case, that, that would be the response from some, just looking at this through natural eyes. In other words, not factoring God in, not factoring in the spiritual reasons of how could such a thing happen, not that, just looking at it in the natural and saying, this was an accident waiting to happen. When is our society going to learn? Uh, my friend Rabbi Shmuley wrote an article uh, because some are, are trying to give a spiritual explanation to this as the nation is, is, is racked with mourning and shock. So he has an editorial on the Jerusalem Post, and this would be typical Shmuley, what I would expect from him. And it says, stop justifying the 45 deaths on Mount Meron. Uh, there is no reason and no justification for the victims' deaths. There is no good that came from their deaths, no lesson for the collective Jewish people. Now, surprisingly, uh, in, in this editorial, he, he pushes back against the redemptive value of suffering, which is something he certainly believes in in other contexts. And, you know, he, he says this, and again, this would be a, a forceful argument from, from my friend Rabbi Shmuley. He said, imagine if someone had written about the Holocaust, sure, six million is a terrible price, but it serves them right. They should have known to be Zionist and immigrate to Palestine. Did 2,000 years of European anti-Semitism teach them nothing? Or if someone had written of the 11 martyred Israeli athletes in Munich, truly a terrible tragedy, but what did they expect returning to Germany just 25 years after the Holocaust? So you say, how, how dare you? throw blame around and point that finger and all that, you know, it's their fault or it should have known or whatever. But then on, on the other hand, on the other hand, he, he rejects a redemptive view of suffering. Say that's the Christian view that, you know, Jesus dies and you have to die and you have to suffer for redemption to come. No, this is just a senseless tragedy and, and let's mourn together and accept the tragedy. So that's, again, I'm giving you the short verse. You can read his, his whole, uh, op-ed piece, which is always forcefully written, as you would expect from Rabbi Shmuley. Um, here is um, an ultra-Orthodox response. And, and here's a response to the ultra-Orthodox response. Rabbi Chaim Kani, I always mispronounce the last name, Kanievsky, excuse me, is one of the most revered rabbinic authorities in the world, in the ultra-Orthodox community, especially Lithuanian Jews, but He's considered like this ultimate sage, you know, an old man, very, very hard to understand words he's saying, but people will come to him for legal opinions from around the world. Leading rabbis will come just saying, we've got this situation. We need your input. 
We need your wisdom. And, and what do you have to say? And he'll just give his one or two word answer. Yes, no, this is okay. This is not, you know, legendary for his study habits, getting up at two 30 in the morning so he can study for hours and hours and hours and go through a massive amount of, of rabbinic literature every year. And, you know, which again is held in high esteem in the rabbinic community. So according to him, this happened by the decree of heaven because you cannot have something like this happen without God decreeing it. That would be a typically Orthodox Jewish view. Yet we have no understanding of why it happened. It, it was decreed by heaven, but we have no idea why that happened. But what we can do, he says, is be more devoted spiritually. And what does that mean? It means more prayer and more observance of, of Torah and tradition. And it means the women dress even more modestly and make sure to wash your hands properly before meals. Now, in his world, this would be the parallel, say, of an evangelical Christian world. After there's some national tragedy, we don't know why this happened, but we've got to seek God more. We've got to get on our faces. We've got to fast. We've got to pray. Well, Jewish tradition is going to say, well, then we should live more traditional lives, be more devoted to our tradition. Now, think of how that sounds, though to the secular world, to the secular Jewish world. So here's another um, article in the Jerusalem Post, Jeremy Sharon. Women must respond to Mehron disaster with more modesty, Rav Kanievsky. In his first comments regarding the death of 45 people during the Lagba Omer celebrations, the leading Haredi rabbi said the disaster was a decree from heaven for reasons that cannot be known. And then they've got a picture of of his actual letter either from him or, or as, as uh, written out by his son or someone else writing it out for him. Uh, so it's, it's written in Hebrew, and it says uh, in the document, this is the son explaining, Yitzchak Shaul says that he has been asked by many people to ask his father why the disaster at Mount Meron on Lagba Omer last week took place. He responded that it is, quote, a decree from heaven, and we cannot know the considerations of heaven. I asked him what needs to be rectified. Like, what can we do to fix this? And our master, the minister of the Torah, replied, we must strengthen ourselves in Torah and persevering in the study of Torah. And he repeated this several times and added, and women should strengthen themselves in modesty. So the the son writing out his father's opinion. So again, within their community, let's be even work even harder, being more traditional and, and, and following the customs and being diligent the outside Israeli world, many of them look at this as, oh, that's it. So women need to be more modest to stop tragedy like this from, from happening. Are you kidding me? And, and again, within their community, the women are pretty much covered head to toe to start. So again, just different responses. Uh, there's some from the religious Jewish world. I'm not going to pull these articles up now, but they they refer to those who died as, as korbanos, korbanot, which would be sacrifices. And the concept would be that somehow they, they died, but they were offered up as sacrifices to God. So for whatever reason the decree came that they died, it wasn't just random. They were selected to die. And there is a rabbinic concept. I haven't read the eulogies from the different funerals, Perhaps more will be published, but I've seen in times like this when religious Jews will die 
it, not not someone you know 98 years old and you know or well, even it'd be said then but you know uh, maybe a 35 year old rabbi father of seven and killed by a terrorist and the response would be well this is the tradition of the death of the righteous services and atonement for the generation why does this person die well god was angry with the generation and he died and it was it was his merit his credit his righteousness that will kind of offset the evil of the generation if they will repent god will have mercy but even with with a famous old rabbi they'd say when he dies may his death be an atonement but all the more in a situation like that and i haven't I haven't read that in eulogies yet i would expect that some of that was said but even the reference to them as korbanos as sacrifices would point to that this idea of, of of them dying as sacrifices as offerings on behalf of the rest of the community and and their righteousness will bring mercy to the community that that kind concept i'm oversimplifying but trying to make that point okay just different responses in any case pray that god's mercy would be poured out and that good would come out of the tragedy It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us today on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. If you have a Jewish-related question of any kind, Give me a call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Are Messianic Jews deceptive? Is there a strong movement in Christian circles to send Gentiles in as missionaries to the Jews, posing as Jews? There is a story that is still shocking the Jewish world worldwide. It's also shocking the Messianic Jewish world and the evangelical Christian world that's hearing about it. It's a story of a man named Michael Elk, a man who was born as a Gentile into a non-observant Christian home, married a Gentile woman. Both of them had become committed Christians, began attending a Messianic Jewish congregation in Pennsylvania, ultimately dressing now like an ultra-Orthodox rabbi and posing as a rabbi and getting documents indicating that he was a rabbi and a Jew, and then with a second wife, having divorced the first, now with a second wife, and claiming that she's Jewish also, although from what I've read, she grew up on a Christmas tree farm. They go to Israel and pose as ultra-Orthodox Jews, live in that community for years, get found out some years ago, and he says, I, I, I repented of that missionary stuff. That's not, I'm not doing that. I'm just living as a religious Jew and continued to live in another religious Jewish community in Jerusalem and then was found out and exposed. And, and then it, it hits the larger world because here you have clips of him in the ultra-Orthodox garb sitting uh, on a show, TV show with Rick Joyner years ago openly talking about Jesus and uh, apparently supported by Morningstar as a missionary. And when I asked Rick Joyner about it, he said he's, a, he's an ultra-Orthodox rabbi living in Jerusalem and, and very bold in his faith. So that's what Rick understood. I said, well, there are accusations that he wasn't a rabbi at all, that he certainly wasn't Jewish, and that was the first 
when I shared that with Rick that he had heard about it. So is this a common practice, forging documents, getting into a community illegally, claiming to be someone other than you are? I'm talking about in terms of your religious faith, okay? I'm not talking about being pragmatic that you don't shout everything from the rooftops all the time. You know, if you live in a country like North Korea and, and you stand on the street corner preaching, that's the last act you'll do in public, right? So you may keep your Christian faith hidden more and share it in more wise ways. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about claiming to be somebody other than you are. You know, claiming to be, say, an atheist professor at a communist university and denouncing Christianity in your classes while secretly proselytizing. Are these common practices, especially in the Messianic Jewish world? Well, according to counter-missionary Rabbi Tovia Singer, they certainly are. Listen to what he had to say about this. There is a very serious problem, not only here in Israel, but in Jewish communities throughout the world, in North America in particular, where missionaries infiltrate the Jewish community. They portray themselves as Jewish when they're not Jewish, portray themselves as rabbis when they're not rabbis. We've had so many cases like this. They're kind of taking their cues from Paul, who made a lot of claims for himself. When you see missionaries on TV, on YouTube, talking about, we have orthodox believers in Yeshua, we need to support them. That's what they're talking about. There's a whole funding thing for these people who have clandestinely infiltrated the Jewish community. Yeah. At first, all the Messianic Jewish leaders that I know in the world, the senior leaders of organizations like Jews for Jesus and Chosen People and One for Israel, we're all emailing each other. Who is this guy? Have you ever heard of such a thing? What in the world is going on? What's this guy doing? What was he thinking? Who supported him? We're, we never heard. We're all baffled. We're all emailing each other. I can show the email trends. Like, what in the world is going Who is this? What are you talking about? Why do you think you have organizations called Jews for Jesus? I, I would say that is pretty clear as, as to where people are coming from. You know, we're chosen people ministries. And you go to the website, we exist to bring the gospel first to the Jewish people. One for Israel. You go to their websites, testimonies about Yeshua. I give example after example of Jewish-based organizations that do Jewish outreach to Jewish people. Over the whole world, That anyone that knows me knows I am a Messianic Jew, knows I am a Jewish believer in Jesus. There's nothing secret about it. There's no mystery about it. The Messianic communities in Israel, they people know who they are. They, they get opposed. You, you've got ultra-Orthodox Jews trying to get them out of the country for various reasons and keep them out of the country from coming in because people know who we are, because we're, we're not ambiguous about things. As to this idea that there's this whole funding thing for all these alleged secret Orthodox believers, I actually know a few. It's very, very few. Ultra-Orthodox Jews. Now, there may be more. I was told by one that there are many more, but it's, it's, none of us know who they are. I couldn't even find the people. I have no idea how to contact any of them. It was, it was that, that much that they, they were not revealing who they were, but they'd lived their whole lives as religious Jews. They were raised as religious Jews, lived their whole lives as religious Jews, part of religious Jewish communities, came to faith in Yeshua. One guy told me there's a network of them around the world. I don't know that. I've never met them face-to-face. -face. I had one phone conversation with one guy. 
Years ago, I met another that was a, a secret believer within the community. But in other words, they, they were religious Jews that came to faith in Jesus. And they continued to live in their community and privately might share their faith with someone. Just like if you had some views that were a little different than the community you're in, you, you, you may just share it privately. But they were authentically religious Jews. And none of them that I knew of were financially supported. I, none of them that, that I knew of were getting financial support for what they were doing. Again, I couldn't even contact them. It's this whole idea of, oh, there's this. That. I, the, the, the one that I know that I can be in contact with, he's, he's as authentically religious Jewish could be, and over many years of, of prayerful studies, convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And, and that's it. In other words, there's, this is not some covert missions thing where we've got all these people sent out. And none of us would dream for a split second of getting a Gentile to claim to be a Jew, claim to be a Jewish rabbi, and then infiltrate a religious Jewish community as such to secretly make converts. That's abhorrent to us. That's com completely abhorrent. We, we do the opposite. We get blasted for being so open. You say, well, what about people claiming to be rabbis that are not? Oh, that's a fair question. In the Messianic Jewish community, right? So Messianic Jewish congregations, there are hundreds of them around the world, the leaders are only called rabbi, not in Israel, but in other parts of the world, they're called rabbi. Why? Because that's what you call a congregational leader. In Catholic church, it's a priest. Protestant church, it's a pastor. Jewish community, rabbi. Is it misleading? Yeah, it could be, could be. But I mean, many of you say, I'm Gentile. They're, they're not lying about who they are. You say, well, what about the ones that dress up like religious Jews? I always tell them not to. I'm telling you, if, you're not, if that's not who you are, that's not your background, don't do it. It's deceptive, it's misleading. It sends a wrong signal. And if you're a Gentile, you don't need to dress up as a religious Jew. That's not going to make you more spiritual. I've actually written about these things every because every so often I see it. When I see it, I warn against it. And none of these people or anybody. In other words, they're not, they're not known. They're not proselytizing. They're just somebody Gentile going to a Messianic congregation in Kentucky dressed as a religious Jew. I'm like, what in the world are you doing, man? <clears throat> ah, but Tovia Singer has more to say. Let's, let's listen. The actual leaders of the Messianic congregations rarely, if ever, convert Jews to Christianity. It's almost unheard of. And this is what people don't get. People think that the leader of the Messianic congregation, he's the one that converts Jews to Christianity. That almost never occurs. They themselves don't directly evangelize Jews, but rather they instruct evangelical Christians how to effectively witness to the Jews. I am sure there's some of you watching me right now who know of someone who got involved in one of these groups. And if you ask that cousin of yours, who is the first person to witness to you, I can almost assure you it'll be someone who is never Jewish and someone who is not a professional missionary. The danger here is that it's against the law to evangelize children in this country. You can't evangelize minors. It's a law in the country. And the way the missionaries frequently circumvent this law is by getting their children to evangelize other children, getting their children inside the system. False, false, false. Number, number one, the reason that evangelical Christians talk to Jewish people about their faith is because they love Jewish people, just like they talk to Hindus and Buddhists and atheists and nominal Christians. They share their faith. That's what evangelical Christians do. And the reason they're often the first ones to talk to Jewish people in America is because there's so many evangelical Christians. Yeah, I'm glad that it was evangelical Christians who shared Jesus with me. 
as a teenager. I'm, I'm glad they did. But as a Messianic leader, the Messianic congregational leader, they're sharing their faith like anybody else. I, I just <laughs> Last week I had in the air with me Sam Nadler, Messianic rabbi for many years. He's always sharing his faith with other Jewish people. Oh, and Gentiles too. As for within Israel, the, the believers there are super, super careful, super careful not to proselytize minors because it's against the law. And they'll tell me we're having this youth gathering, but everyone has to sign. They have, they have to have permission from their parents before they can come. They were the ones that told me about this many years ago. They said, oh, yeah, it's the law across Israel. Very important that we honor that and keep that. So if we're having a youth gathering, the kids cannot come without express permission from their parents. Don't listen to the lies of Rabbi Singer. Get to the truth, and let's focus on the real issue. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah or not? That's the issue. And we are forthright, open, bold, clear. This is who we are. This is what we believe. Jews for Jesus. We're not ashamed. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. His grace and his face shine upon Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Can I make a request? We have a lot of material out online. Jewish outreach material, debates with rabbis, teachings on YouTube, extensive articles, lots of outreach material available. We have whole series of broadcasts we recorded for Middle East TV, which air in Israel, major network, uh, cable network there in Israel, with uh, Hebrew captions, just all of them. Uh, outreach videos we've recorded, I think a total of 25 if I'm correct, somewhere around there. Uh, and um, those are out, those air. One of my colleagues in Israel was, was watching, was at the airport ready to fly out on Super Bowl Sunday last year, and METV had aired the Super Bowl. You know, they aired different things, westerns and shows that are still popular in Israel, people like to, to watch, and then some inspirational programming as well. And... Uh, he was, he was praying about some new Jewish outreach initiatives, uh, Hebrew outreach in Israel. And he was praying about it, wondering, is anyone going to watch? And looks up on the screen, and there's my face in the airport in Israel on all the monitors, uh, preaching Yeshua, preaching Jesus. And obviously what happened was they had the Super Bowl on on METV. And when it ended, they, I don't know how long it was up for, but there I was. And that was uh, an encouragement to him at that moment as he was praying about that very thing. We've got a lot of material out there. We've got series of videos that we're producing out just demolishing the misinformation of counter-missionary Rabbi Tovia Singer. And perhaps when we're done with those, those could be several dozen. We'll go on to some other counter-missionaries and, and refute their material. Uh, the list goes on and on. And then the five volumes that we've written Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus in 22-hour class, Countering the Counter-Missionaries. They're all out there. Would you pray with me 
as they're translated into different languages, some in Hebrew, some in Russian, some in Spanish, some in Portuguese. Would you pray with me that God would use these to reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Would you do that? The materials are out there. The resources are out there. They're in multiple languages. We're getting more and more stuff dubbed with Hebrew captions. There is even a creative way that more of my material will get out in Hebrew directly through Israelis. Uh, God's enabled us to help spark and inspire some of the major Jewish outreach taking place in Israel today. So we, we, we play a key role in this. And then when so many get confused and have questions, they, they come to us with their questions. They come to us struggling, many on the verge of losing their faith. And with our team and our materials, we're able to help them by God's grace. So would you pray with us? Would you pray that God would use these materials to, to touch Jewish people around the world? We are overt. We are clear. No one has any question about what we believe if they've heard us speak. So pray that God would use these. Uh, it, it is the prayers of the church that will be vital in bringing the Jewish people into a saving knowledge of Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, our King. So thank you for praying. Those that want to stand with us financially know, know for sure, those that do stand with us, that this is one of the pillars of our ministry, that this is an, an always that we are doing. This is something that we are always involved with and always putting out material in and helping others with. So if you support us financially, know that your, your funds are helping us reach the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So overt, clear, this is who we are. You can make one-time contributions, watching on Facebook, the donate button on YouTube, the dollar sign, or better still, become a supporting partner. Go to askdrbrown.org, click on donate. And again, all of you that can pray, we really do appreciate it. All right, I, I want to catch you up on a very major development. Ah, okay. I, I just looked, I was going to grab some calls, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to go over to this article in Jerusalem Post. So Prime Minister Netanyahu has basically said, okay, I, I, can't, I can't form a coalition government. And as much as he's revered and appreciated, especially by evangelical Christians in America, for much of the good he's done in helping Israel's international status and standing strongly for security, uh, he's, he's not as popular within Israel. There are personal family issues that have come up. He's under attack for that. Is there corruption? And he's made coalitions with the, the ultra-right in certain ways, and, and that creates more opposition within Israel. Israel as a whole has shifted more to the right as a nation, but then you have the, the far right versus the centrist right. And in order for him to form potential coalitions, it means siding with the, the far right, and that's been more controversial. In any case... As expected, he's been unable to form a government. And again, in Israel, Knesset, parliament, that's 120 seats, so you need 61. Maybe your party gets 35. Maybe, maybe your competitor's party gets 30, but you're competitors, so you're not going to work together. That'd be easy, form a coalition. Last time it happened with, with Likud and Blue and White, Netanyahu is going to form a coalition with Benny Gantz. Okay, I'll be prime minister first, then you'll be prime minister after me. One of my Israeli friends told me the joke in Israel that there was only one person in Israel that thought that was going to work, and that was Benny Gantz. Very, basically, everybody else understood once Netanyahu's in, he's going to stay in. Well, anyway, right now he's unable to form another government. Are they going to have yet another election? Five, six? How many elections are they going to have? It's been one after another after another for the last few years. So the possibility is next in line is Yair Lapid, 
uh, Yesh Atid, There Is a Future, that's the name of the party. And he is centrist right. And there's the possibility of him working with Naftali Bennett of the Amina party, who's religious Zionist, but not, not ultra-Orthodox, but religious Zionist. And then maybe bringing in an Arab party, which would be the first time that the government would form a coalition in this way, giving them more weight. In other words, each one says, okay, I want this, I want this, I want this concession, and then you, you make the thing work. Uh, but this could actually happen. So I, I want to read some of this article, May 5th, by Gil Hoffman in Jerusalem Post. Uh, Yesh Atid leader Yair Lapid and Yamina Chairman Naftali Bennett intend to engage in marathon talks to form a unity government beginning Thursday after President Reuven Rivlin announced Wednesday night that he is entrusting Lapid with the second mandate to form a government. Lapid and Bennett wanted to form a government as soon as possible and believe it can be done within a week. They expressed concern that if they did not hurry, their efforts would be harmed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, whose mandate ended Tuesday night without a coalition being formed, who was trying to sabotage the formation of a government that would replace him. And between his various times as Prime Minister, he's been Prime Minister longer than any previous one. Yamina M.K., so these are Knesset ministers, so, you know, Senate, senators, congressmen would be the same. Yamina M.K.s are under pressure to oppose the unity government following the lead of M.K. Amichai uh, Chilki, or Chikil, excuse me, Chilki, or Hikli, depends on how it's pronounced, who announced his opposition on Wednesday morning. Netanyahu vowed that more M.K.s would join him. Lapid will have 28 days to build a coalition, concluding on June 2nd. He intends to form a government in which Bennett goes first. Ah, say, okay, you, you go first. Wow. In a rotation with him in the prime minister's office, but he has not ruled out a coalition without Yamina. The main consideration that Israeli presidents must weigh when arriving at the decision of who to entrust with forming a government is who has the best chance of forming a government that will have the confidence of the new Knesset. From the number of recommendations, it is clear that M.K. Yair Lapid could form a government that has the confidence of the Knesset, despite there being many difficulties. So look at, look at what Lapid's saying to pride of unity. By the way, if you think politics in America are volatile, it's nothing like Israel. Israel is far more volatile. I don't mean that your average Israeli gets any more engaged and worked up than your average American. But the mudslinging back and forth and the rock throwing and the attacks and the level of hostility and acrimony, and it's, it's very intense. And the amount of different parties all vying. Picture we had 20 parties battling for four seats, not, not two main ones. So Lapid pledged to do everything to ensure that an Israeli unity government will be formed as soon as possible. Quote, after two years of political paralysis... Israeli society is hurting. That's true. A unity government isn't a compromise or a last resort. It's a goal. It's what we need, he said. We need a government that will reflect the fact that we don't hate one another. Well, the problem is many do hate each other. That's the problem. But he's trying to say, look, ultimately we don't. We're fellow Israelis. A government which left, right, and center will work together to tackle the economic and security challenges we face. A government that will show that our differences are a source of strength, not weakness. Hey, it's a good speech. There were certain things that, that President Biden said in his inauguration speech that I didn't like. But boy, I loved his call for unity. I just think he's done everything the opposite of that since he's been in. In other words, he's, he's saying radical left position after position after position and only further, further alienating conservatives and those on the right and Republicans and, and others. 
but I like the call for you. Well, this is, a, th- I like this. I like this idea of let our differences come together as strengths. Sounds good, but, but can it, can it happen? Um, so ne- according to Netanyahu, what Bennett wants to form is a dangerous left-wing government. So, you know, they're, they're trying to say the, the, those in the middle on the left are saying Netanyahu is going radical right, radical right, extremist. It's like all Trump followers are white supremacists. It's that kind of rhetoric. And then Netanyahu and those with him are saying that those who are, who are, who are moderate, right, centrist, leading left, they're, they're forming a radical left government. So the warnings, the scare tactics are there. Could it work? It, it could. It, it, it seems to have a possibility that it could work. Will it be good or bad? Uh, who knows? Who can even figure out which direction it would go? What concessions would have to be made? See, one of the gripes that Messianic Jews in Israel rightly have with Netanyahu is they appreciate so much good he's done across the board. And yet, for him to get into power recently, not every time, but frequently, he's had to make coalitions with ultra-Orthodox, and the ultra-Orthodox are adamant enemies of the Messianic Jewish community. will make life as difficult as possible for them in terms of immigration and status within the land and things like that. So it's like, well, if Netanyahu gets in, then they get in power. And so it, it's, it's very much a mix. There's no just black and white here. Everything is, is gray on one level or another. So pray for God's will. Lord, your will be done. Lord, work out things for your divine purposes. I don't know how else to pray beyond that. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. It is 30 Jewish Thursday. Michael Brown, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, I, I just glanced up at Facebook on my screen here. Alexia, thanks for your contribution. We appreciate it very much. 866-348-7884 if you have a Jewish-related call. So uh, today, this is, this is a first in my life where you're sitting waiting to hear award announcements and you win something or not. In, in, in this particular way, it was the first. I got notified by my publisher a few weeks ago, the publisher of my commentary on Job, so that's Hendrickson Publishers, Job, the Faith to Challenge God, a new translation and commentary. And it was one of six finalists in a Bible reference category. I think there are 11 different categories and six different finalists in each one. And it was the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association annual awards. And mine had made it as a finalist. These are books published between October 2019 and October 2020. 
And then out of the 300-something books that the judges went through, they came up with these finalists, and I was honored to be one of the finalists. So I got a notice. The thing is going to be on such and such a time. So it was an hour before radio. I thought, oh, okay, great. Well, I'm sitting here writing. I'll, I'll put it on. And, and so, again, it was an honor to be part of it, an honor that the, the judges found it worthy to make it into the finalists. So it was a different book. It was a book about New Testament world by N.T. Wright and a, another New Testament scholar um, that apparently brings things really to life from the perspective of, of, a, of an early Christian. And uh, so that's the only thing I know that that was the, the winner. But I, I was blessed to be part of that. And, and uh, it's when I went through the list of 66 books and the finalists, it was the only commentary that made it there. So I was honored uh, by that. And again, as I was praying uh, on the way, I, uh, I thought, well, that's, that's so interesting. I've, I've never had that. I found out years ago that there was another award, Apologetic Book of the Year, and one of my volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus took second place. And I, I knew the guy that took first place. I said, hey, man, I'm glad, I'm glad it was you. Uh, but I mean, not, normally I'm not thinking about this and my books aren't nominated for these awards. So it was just, it was an interesting thing. And the winner is, I thought, how interesting. Uh, but I just said, hey, Lord, whatever your, whatever your will is on this, let it, let it be done. Obviously, it wasn't a major prayer focus. And I just said, oh, Lord, I'd like to win. And this just, again, what matters is the favor of God and the impact that our work has on others. But uh, again, I was really honored that the book was chosen to get that far, to be one of the six finalists, and that it was the only commentary uh, chosen out of the books that were submitted over this one-year period that made it that far. So uh, it, it, the, the reason I share this is it happened just before radio, and so it was on my mind. But, you know, there is work that, that you do that each of us do, that is painstaking, that uh, is hard, that is outwardly unrewarding, that is often behind the scenes, as parents, as, as followers of Jesus, doing things in secret that others don't know. Some of you plugging away day after day through outward drudgery, but trying to honor the Lord, and, and others in secret prayer, others giving, supporting missionaries, and nobody, nobody knows what you do with your money, others just parenting and, and making the hard choices and sacrificial choices to put your kids first. And this, this goes on for years and for decades, and no one seems to notice. Well, first, God, God notices. God sees. He, he's aware. And, and, and then secondly, the fruit will remain. If, if you have honored the Lord and you have sown with tears, you will reap with joy, either in this world or the world to come. And those are some of the lessons from Job that whatever it goes wrong in this world, no matter who or what is behind it, whatever goes wrong, God, if we honor him, will make it right, either in this world or the world to come. Whatever's been taken illegitimately, if we honor the Lord, will come back to us in this world or the world to come. And then the things that are done in secret to honor God and the things that are not sensational. Come on, 99.9% of all Christian ministry that takes place doesn't take place on the big screen. It takes place in interpersonal relations. 
sure, God works through internet, and God works through books, and God works through TV, and God works through all these different means, obviously. But normally it's just it's people loving people. It's people interacting with people. And so much of the most important work is not seen. So much of the most important work is not, is not heralded by others and praised by others. And you say, well, what's that got to do with the Job commentary? Well, here, you do not do commentary work to get rich. You do not do commentary work for fame. I mean, maybe somebody does somewhere, but it is painstaking. It takes years and years and years of effort. I'm talking about to produce a solid academic commentary. It takes years and years of work. And then when you get with, through the years and years of work, I mean, you have scholars that work on projects 20 or 30 years, on a, on a single commentary project. But let's say you work on something for five or 10 years, and then you're done with it. You, you finish the work. You're done with that. And then you submit it to the publisher. And then the academic editor will come back with months of work for you to do. I need you to verify this. I need you to check into this. I need you, let's phrase this, whatever. And then when the book finally comes out, oh, you sell like a million copies. No, you don't sell a million copies. Oh, you sell like 100,000. No, you don't sell 100,000 copies. Oh, you sell like 10,000 copies. No, you don't sell 10,000 copies. Oh, there, there are some rare commentaries where that happens. There, there are some where, where that happens. You know, Dennis Prager was stunned when his rationalist commentary on the Torah, uh, his first volume came out, I think it was Exodus, and he sent me a copy of it. He was utterly stunned when it jumped up as a national bestseller. He said, obviously, there's interest in Scripture. But generally speaking, that's not going to happen. A publisher might be happy if, if they sell 1,000 or 1,500 or, or 2,000 copies of, of, of a commentary. And if it's part of a series, then... Like my Jeremiah commentary, if you have the volume, my name's not even on the outside because it's together with, with uh, Ezekiel, excuse me, Lamentations and Ezekiel. So the whole volume, yeah, mine is the bulk of the volume, but you've got two other scholars with two other works there. So if you, if you have it, it just has the editor's names on there. And then you say, well, how much do you make with royalties? Okay, listen, I could dig ditches with a toothpick working minimum wage and make more money per hour than I made writing a commentary. <laughs> Got it? So that's what I'm saying to you, that so much of what you do is not going to be sensationalized. And it is not, it's not going to be big news and it's not glamorous. It's the day-to-day. -day. It's in the trenches. It's behind the scenes. You know, I was, I was up late last night working on my Isaiah commentary for a new series of Pentecostal charismatic scholars doing commentaries on every book of the Bible. And um, I just got caught up on one word. And I had researched it a lot in, in the first chapter of Isaiah, really trying to wrestle with, do I translate with ah, like ah, or alas, or woe? And I really dug into it because like with Job, I did a new translation. I'm doing the same with Isaiah. And I really dug into it and spent quite a large amount of time really trying to see how this word was used and, and how it was translated in the ancient versions and how it broke down in lexical data in terms of dictionary data 
through the, the Hebrew Bible and where the usage was found and etc. And then landed on how to translate it in Isaiah 1 and debated it then finally landed on it. And now I'm over in the fifth chapter where you have seven, seven hoi oracles or, or pronouncements, seven woes. We have the seven, Jesus pronouncing seven woes on the religious hypocrites in Matthew 23 and Luke 11. Is this the same? Are these woes being pronounced? Well, the vast majority of English translations translate with woe. But when I looked at it more, I thought, you know, I don't think it's the best translation here. And I started digging deeper and looking further and rethinking what I'd gone back to what I'd written in the first chapter. <laughs> in the end, in the end, we're talking about the translation of, of one word, right? And, and probably 90% of people who read it won't, won't even realize there's a difference. I mean, they'll notice it's different, but they won't even get the, the full meaning of it. But it's, it's the word of God. It's sacred, right? And uh, so... The, the whole thing is it's not done for people in terms of, well, when I come out with this, everybody will be like, wow, what an amazing teaching. They'll probably be like, well, what's the big deal between one word and the other? But it's, it's a sacred thing. You're, so, so many of you doing ministry, you're doing it. It's sacred. God sees it. You may not have your reward from people, but you have your reward from God. So many making the hard family choices, personal choices, doing things, honoring God when nobody sees it, God sees it. You may not have your reward from people, but you'll get your reward from God. My great reward in the Job Company, I was honored that I almost got this award, but the great reward for me is seeing people being impacted by it, people being changed by it, people being helped by it, people growing in the Word, growing their relationship with God. That's the reward. So be encouraged. Your labor is never in vain. Another program powered by the Truth Network.